Welcome to Lampcast Symphony 101, where we take a dive into the history of music. I'm John Taylor Ward, one of the founders of the Lakes Area Music Festival, as well as your host. And in this series, I'm joined by German conductor Christian Reif. Today, we'll discuss the classical period, favorites like Mozart and Haydn, what it means and what it led to. Lampcast and the entire Lakes Area Music Festival season of 2020 is made possible by Hunt Utility Group and Happy Dancing Turtle, as well as Lycans Pinehurst Resort. We're also made possible in part by legacy funds from the Five Wings Arts Council and the Minnesota State Arts Board. An accompanying playlist of music from the classical period specially selected by Christian Reif is available in a Spotify playlist in the show notes of today's episode. Due to technical difficulties, we lost about the first two minutes of this interview, but we're going to cut into a moment where I'd asked Christian to define the difference between the terms classical period and classical music. Enjoy. So many different facets of the classical period as well and the classical music. So you can't break it down to just one, I think. Yeah. But, but I, think, yeah. I think that's such a helpful analogy, especially for the Baroque versus the classical period is architecture. If you <laughs> think of a neoclassical building, which we have uh, many of in the United States, that's sort of the, the era of the founding of the United States was, was this period of time. You think of those clean lines, understated, uh, very proportional yeah. uh, sorts of buildings, as opposed to the more fanciful, more ornate Baroque period. And I think that that's a great analogy. It's never perfect. It's an, exactly. Outliers. And there, there obviously structure is in, in Baroque music also very, very important. But, yeah, and absolutely. so the, the lines are blurred, of course. But yes, mm -hmm. if you wanted to. Right. And so what is what's sort of the overview of the chronology of this period in terms of music? Who are the, who are the major figures and, and how do they sort of line up one before and after each other? We, we talk a lot about the, the, the Viennese classic, the, the, the first Viennese school, um, because Josef Haydn, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Ludwig van Beethoven, they, uh, they all lived in Vienna at some point, um, some overlapping. Uh, and and um, so that, that, that kind of defined the classical period, those three. There were many other composers and many others that we play as well. Um, I would say 1750 is, an, is a time that, that people now say started the classical era. Um, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach died in 1750 and he was the grandmaster. Right, grandmaster of Baroque music, but also for, I mean, influenced every, everyone after that. Um, and Haydn himself, he, I mean, he was, he was born in 1732. He had a long life, died in 1809. Um, so he was kind of, he was the grand, grandmaster of the classical period in terms of also the, we call him the father of the string quartet, the father of the symphony. He, he wrote 104 symphonies, and uh, we can get to that in a second as well. Um, and and uh, Mozart was um, 1756, lived 1756 to uh, 1791, uh, rather shorter, and uh, Beethoven then 70, 1770 to 1827. 
and then we can talk about Schubert too. But um, uh, he's almost, I would say, more more romantic. The, the, the door that was already Beethoven kind of uh, opened up, um, Schubert went through even more so. And but and and it's a little tragic. Also, he he was always in the shadow of Beethoven. He was also in Vienna, um, but uh, with everyone thought that after Beethoven died, the giant died. Um, now it's Schubert's time, but he died a year later in 1828. So um, yeah, that's remarkable. tragic. And yeah. Also, it's, it's interesting to think about the world events that are going on there. I, I mentioned the, the founding of America, but this is also the French right. Revolution leading right. into 1789. Napoleon by the end. Uh, this is also a very, a very fraught historical period, which is interesting in contrast with this very orderly sort of music. Also the age of enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. So these, these classical ideals and this hearkening back to, to you know, Greco-Roman um, ideas of governance uh, as well as aesthetics are something that was very much a part of the zeitgeist at that mm -hmm. time. And yeah, I yeah. think it's important to think of this music in that context. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, also the Enlightenment, um, I mean, basically all of the 18th century, um, mm -hmm. they were all children, all these um, uh, composers were children of it. And uh, there was a big shift, I would say, also between those three from being a court musician, mm -hmm. like Haydn, throughout his life, even though at the end he was more freelancing and, and he was released of most of his duties uh, from Prince Esterhazy, but he was, he was a court musician. He was a court composer, conductor, everything. Um, and, and then uh, Mozart at the beginning too, but then became more freelancing and Beethoven never had a court position. He was always um, his own and he was very proud of it and also and never wanted any other way. Um, of working, he wanted to be his own person and own man and, and decide exactly what, um, what to write. And this, and he, especially Beethoven, um, I'm sure many of our listeners will know also, I mean, the, uh, he adored Napoleon until he crowned himself. And so there's this famous anecdote about, uh, uh, about the third uh, symphony of Beethoven, Eroica that he wrote for Napoleon, it, it was supposed to be dedicated to Napoleon. But then you heard that, that all the ideals of liberty, you know, toleration and brotherhood and so forth, um, that, that he believed in, Beethoven believed in and believed in Napoleon. Napoleon just, you know, crammed himself and became a sovereign. And, and so um, Beethoven t uh, tore the dedication page out or kind of rubbed it out very vehemently. You can still see that in the, yeah. in the manuscript and then wrote Eroica for the hero and so yeah. the the person the 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 human really grew center became center stage it was not so Haydn also was a very devout um, person actually his mother wanted him to become a priest but anyway it's a different story um, he, he there was the shift between uh, from writing for the glory of God uh, sorry writing for the glory glory to God glory of God of writing and and uh it was from bach as well and and uh, haydn always wrote that at the end of his symphonies too um to then really this the human the person the character the emotion that it became mm -hmm. center stage mm -hmm. and i yeah this is so fascinating and this is what 
makes topics like this just sort of bottomless pits. We could go on forever because yeah. <laughs> what we're talking about is we're talking about aesthetic movements, we're talking about political movements, we're talking about economic change that's happening over this period. And all three of those things are working together to create this artistic movement. So I think that that's yeah. really interesting. It, the more you're learning about history, the more you're learning about society in all of these periods, yeah. that's also informing the way we understand this music. Exactly. So, and also, I mean, I, so I talked about briefly, but the, the, the you know, from a court musician to a freelancer but mm -hmm. it's also that the way concerts were held were different now suddenly because um there, there was a shift at the time that that it was not only the aristocracy that that was putting on concert at court and so forth and it was basically for the for the duke for the king for the uh, mm -hmm. and so forth but but music was presented to the broader public and it was also commissioned and driven by other musicians mm -hmm. um of course, Solomon, um, you know, Peter Solomon was uh, one of those famous curators and musicians who brought Haydn to London and Haydn had a huge career there. And, and thank God that he brought him there because some of the most brilliant symphonies of Haydn's, all his, his last 12 uh, were written for the London public. Um, so that, that was another shift as well. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a little bit ago about how we think of Haydn as the father of the string quartet. And I think even his, in his time, independent of the string quartet, he was known as Papa Haydn, yes? Because he was uh, a, a mentor to so many, of these, so many of these composers and was seen as such a giant in his own time. He was, so, and, and it's, sorry. Go no, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I find that fascinating because he didn't have kids. He didn't have children at all, um, but he was a very nurturing, very kind figure. And, and I think that he also received lots of kindness. I mean, after he was singing in the choir in, the, in Vienna um, for the mm -hmm. Stephansdom and as a, as a kid, as a boy. And then when he was 18, he was kicked out and he was penniless. He was homeless. He was on the streets of Vienna. And then another musician who was, didn't have much himself, um, he took him in into his family and they lived in this, this tiny little attic um, uh, together with the family. And, and I think that instilled uh, the, ki the, the kindness and generosity. He always paid that forward in, in, throughout his whole life, whether it was for his court musicians, he fought vehemently for their right and for, their, for the payment also, but for, for many different things, and, uh, but also for fellow composers. Mozart, Beethoven, mm -hmm. and and so he was. Yeah, he was definitely a father figure, not just yeah. for the symphony and for the string quartet, but for the people, for the musicians and composers themselves. Yeah, and just real quick, I was uh, taking a peek at the chat. I saw a request for me to be a little bit louder. I just turned myself up a bit, and I hope that helps. Um, what we talk about in the classical period, the development of things like the string quartet, but we are also talking about, uh, as with any period, we're adding new instruments to orchestral and chamber music writing. We're adding uh, new kinds of ensembles to the repertoire. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What are, what are some of those technological uh, improvements or changes that are happening during this period? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that that was um, almost throughout, almost for every instrument, there were technical, technical improvements or developments. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we still, 
play on Baroque violins um, for a certain repertoire today. And we call it and playing, you know, historical performance. Um, and, and we have many musicians at Lakes Area Music Festival who studied that too and, and are brilliant at playing um, on Baroque violins and bows. Or, and, uh, but, but so the, the change of strings from gut strings, so forth, that changed. But also um, the, the harpsichord kind of uh, was let go a bit and the pianoforte, yeah. so a new keyboard instrument, uh, the pianoforte, which basically the name just was invented because it was able you were able to play soft and loud piano mm -hmm. and forte and yeah. that was the only reason <laughs> and so um but, but obviously especially beethoven but all of them um, were really excited about all those changes and so harpsichord you can only play basically one dynamic you can mm -hmm. you can shift with the pedal but basically that's it um and then obviously as a as a clarinet my player myself um that was the classical period really um, brought to the forefront, or no, not to the forefront, because I would say that it was the Romantic era, but um, yeah. the, the clarinet came as, became a standard instrument in the, in the orchestra by mm -hmm. 1780. So the, 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 the clarinet first was invented in its, in its first, first form in around 1700. But that was really a far inferior instrument as we know now. I mean, it was, and, and it was more just kind of a, I wouldn't say a fanfare instrument because that's also, that's different. Now. But uh, it's actually funny that clarini, when you see that in written in the score, that's not clarinets. That's a, sometimes a bit of a, um, people get confused. That's a, that's yeah. a trumpet more or less. Yeah, that's, right. you play that with trumpets, usually with the Baroque trumpets or the, not the ventos, ven now I don't know the English word, but anyway, the, the clarinets, uh, clarinetto and clarini, they're two different things. The, uh, the, the clarinets, though, really got developed through that century. Mm -hmm. And um, so Hein, I think it was already in 51 that he wrote in his first mass um, uh, a clarinet, but um, then later in his symphonies, definitely also, uh, and um, Mozart, of course, Mozart in, uh, wrote the one of the most beautiful, and most famous clarinet concerti ever, and also clarinet quintets and so forth. Uh, quintet. And Mozart seems to have a love affair with the clarinet. In his, oh yeah, in his operas, in his chamber music, the clarinet quintet, which is one of the great oh, pieces of this period. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like the way that I think about the horn in Baroque music of it sort of coming into the ensemble family and composers yeah. like Bach in the first Brandenburg concerto or something like that. You, you, you feel this excitement about a composer getting a new tool to play with. Yes, uh, a new color. Feel yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel that way about the clarinet in this period, Absolutely. that it was this very exciting, Absolutely. interesting, exotic thing that composers wanted yeah. to wanted to figure out how to use most effectively and it leads yeah. to a lot of great repertoire. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Mozart was sad that he discovered it only so late in his life. Yeah, They were yeah. all kind of in the uh, Kirchhoffverzeichnis 600 and, you know, late, 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 he wrote these clarinet pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, I think, well, he actually wrote it for Basset, or Basset clarinet, Basset clarinet yeah. Um, yeah. which was a, is a bit of a larger, a bit of, uh, has the low, uh, as well and so it's a, it's a bigger instrument but um the, the the main thing about the clarinet i think that that 
was so exciting for them all was the tender, the emotional, the singing quality of it, the, the, the also the sweet timbre, the, the ability to also the deep, the depth mm -hmm. of it. You beautifully, oboes, flutes couldn't play that, that uh, low. Um, and also it was easy when, when all the um, clapping, all the, all the fingerings and so forth, um, and the technology caught up, um, you could play very virtuosic and very high leaps, big leaps. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounded really, so that if you listen to Mozart's clarinet concerto, uh, that's one of the, the main features. I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs> and he just has yeah. a big, big laugh for it. Um, but in, in general, I would say, and, and it came, uh, the, the clarinet is, is an instrument that composers love to use whenever they want to convey something more emotional. The, the um, something also dark and especially in the romantic area then later I would say but but there was yeah. there was uh, certainly that quality well, like those big leaps you're talking about a lot of times mm -hmm. we talk about chiaroscuro the mm -hmm. which is of course hearkening back to a much earlier Italian painting technique but when I think of the clarinet I think one of its great gifts is that ability to be both dark and light to be both playful and somber at the same time it's it's such a yeah. versatile uh, and expressive instrument that it's not surprising absolutely that it was picked up so enthusiastically by these people yeah, um, yeah. And, and that brings us to another point which is this is the period when a lot of the forms that we think of in that probable term that problematic term classical music are sort of are sort of defined during this period. Uh, they existed before, but the way we think about the sonata, the way we think about the symphony, uh, again, we talked about the string quartet. This is the period, again, we're talking about the enlightenment where people <laughs> wanted to classify things, where they wanted to, you know, give Kant and empirical reasoning and, you know, really figuring out the structure and form of things going back to, again, that classical, Platonic uh, ideal. Talk about about how how these forms developed over this time. Yeah, so the sonata form, if you want to break it down, it's basically one idea gets gets uh, gets presented, and then after some kind of inter, inter transition, a second contrasting idea gets presented and those two you i mean this is very obviously you can you can see so many uh pieces that this is not the case in the sonata form but if you want to say okay the first one is kind of strong strident um kind of here i am very yeah declamatory in a sense that's the first theme in a sonata form and the second theme is usually again, I say usually, um, a more tender, more lyrical, maybe more cantabile, more singable um, theme. And then in the, uh, that's all in the exposition, exposition to expose those kind of ideas, those two central ideas. That's the first part of the sonata form. And the second part is the development where those two ideas get developed and kind of get go through the ringer in terms of harmony, in terms of colors, emotions, characters, and kind of those often those uh, themes get stripped away and you go to a little motif, a detail. Both Haydn and Beethoven were 
absolutely brilliant at it. I mean, if you just think of the, the fifth symphony, and that's, and then you just go from there. Um, then the, the development, yeah, just composer can go crazy. Then you have the recapitulation, the kind of third big part of the sonata form, and that repeats the, the, the basically the exposition, but um, in the home keys, in the home harmony. So we're at home. We arrive you, you again. Return. We return exactly, and obviously these are only the broad strokes, the strokes, and you can you can find your variations within mm -hmm. and the coda and codetta and in in transition developments and all that yeah. yeah but again we can connect this to the architectural movement we think of classical architecture and we think of symmetry yes and so this sonata form uh, is is sort of a musical representation of that a b a and the sonata form as it develops in the classical period is something that's not just in pieces called sonatas, right? We're also mm -hmm. going to be, composers are also using sonata forms in all sorts of different types of things, especially the first movement of a symphony is exactly. in this period, almost always in that ABA form. And it's popping up in yeah. chamber music, in solo instrumental writing, in orchestral writing, everywhere. Yeah. And, and and at the time, obviously, they didn't know that they were writing in sonata form. It was yeah. just kind of, a, it, it developed into a form of structure that one could say and talk about two contrasting ideas. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or sometimes a sonata form has three themes. Sometimes a sonata form has only one. So yeah. it's it's, again, it's dangerous to just put a stamp on it and this is how it is. Um, it's dangerous to talk about anything because you're never all the way right. <laughs> exactly. But just to, <laughs> to, to simplify it in a way, yes. And yeah, um, yeah they, they're not only in sonatas, of course, um, but the, the, the um, yeah, in, every, in the symphonies and the string quartets. String quartet also, which is, I love, I, and, and Haydn has, has really pushed that form um, so far and Beethoven took it way further again um but goethe once said uh, that he with a string quartet it's so beautiful because you hear four it's a con i'm paraphrasing but it's a conversation of four intelligent people mm -hmm. and and the cool thing about haydn also is that that in his later quartets um he when we talked about homophonic writing before of the one melody and the then the subordinate uh, accompaniment, um, he, he found a way of, of, of having four individually important voices and yes. they inform each other and, and they play with each other. They talk to each other. They, they fight with each other and mm -hmm. so forth. And so that, that's really, I think that's a beautiful idea and a beautiful yeah. image to, yeah. to have when you hear a string quartet. Well, so before we open this up to questions, I have one more unanswerable question for you, uh, <laughs> which is when I think of classical music or the classical period, the word that comes to mind is charm. Mm -hmm. why, why do we like this music so much? Before earlier this week, we were both sharing our affection for Haydn. What, what is it about this this period of music that that continues to grab people and and makes it some of the most popular classical music 
around still to this day? That's a really good question and a really hard one to answer because it's so individual. I think anyone can hear anything <laughs> in music. So yeah. I, I can tell you some thoughts about what I hear, but, but uh, you would hear something completely different and our listeners and watchers uh, would, will hear something else entirely. Um, but, but I think the, the a few thoughts, maybe it's the, the directness mm -hmm. um, we, and the, the, the brilliance, of, the in, immediate brilliance and joyfulness of, of this kind of music. The, the, I mean, obviously, uh, classical music has some of the most heartbreaking ones and music as well. I mean, no doubt about it, but, but the, the, the fast, the joyful ones are absolutely riveting. And, and, the, and then I would say later, you know, if, if you would just compare to the romantic period, everything gets so, you know, rot and, and everything gets, the emotions are, are presented to you, maybe even, or even shoved in your face a little bit, some of these emotions <laughs> of the music and, and kind of, this is what it is. This is what you need to think or, yeah. or yeah. feel. Um, and it's just, oh, this is, and this is, uh, you know, I don't, I don't use the word sappy, but you know, uh, it can get a little bit more, yeah, it's just, it's dense, it's that way. Yeah. Classical music is, in a way, gives you more freedom. Mm -hmm. And the, all of that is in there. There's heartbreaking, there's tenderness, there's joyful, there's danger, there's, there's uh, everything, any emotion is present in any and all music. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not in the same piece, everything, but you know, in, in the era, I wouldn't say this period is only there for joy. And yeah, everything in the classical music is joyful or, you know, everything in the romantic period is emotional and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's not, you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of variety, but um, I, especially studying the music, studying Haydn, I find joy in just the simplest and in the, <laughs> the simplest moments i mean really this is this is okay this is very nerdy again but uh this is very uh let's say we have a four-part phrase usually our bodies our minds our feeling is a four-bar phrase is very natural and you have a strong weak and strong weak bar those elements of the four-bar phrase and then if someone now if haydn cuts the last bar and makes the four bar a shortened four bar phrase. It's not a three bar phrase because it's a shortened four bar phrase. And that means that we have a, <laughs> this is very nerdy. I'm so sorry, I'm done almost. But you're here the, at a the... music lecture. I think you're allowed to be nerdy. <laughs> but then the last, so the third bar is, is a strong bar. And that's, and immediately after that strong bar comes another strong bar because that's the first mm. bar of the next phrase. So I have, I mean, I'm immediately surprised by the next bar. And so this, this kind of, this feeling of, oh, oh something else is happening yeah. and I didn't expect that. That mm -hmm. is something that gives me mm -hmm. <laughs> immense joy. And, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that anyone who would listen um, has, can get that feeling and has that feeling maybe subconsciously would never be able okay. to uh, say, oh yeah, yeah, that's because Haydn just ended the, you know, set up the eight bar phrase. And then when he repeated it, he just cut one. Mm -hmm. You might be able to say that, but you, it, it, that feeling of surprise, that feeling of, oh, 
something else yeah. is happening uh, than I expected. The setting up of expectations. Haydn is yeah. brilliant with that. Also the others too, but the great composers are brilliant. Setting up expectations and then destroying them. Yeah. And that gives me so much joy. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, I think that would be my answer too, would be the transparency that we talked about of form, of counterpoint, of all of these things is something that even if you're not consciously aware of it as a listener, it's something that you just feel when you listen to the music and, and you, there's something eminently satisfying about mm -hmm. both that disruption of expectations and when it finally happens, the, the fulfillment exactly. of those expectations yeah. is, is so rewarding. Mm -hmm. So with that, I want to open <laughs> it up to everybody in the audience uh, with your questions. Feel free to ask us questions about the classical period in that Q&A box down at the bottom of your screen, or feel free to go off topic. Uh, we are, we're happy to talk about anything. So I will wait for a little bit for some questions to come in. Don't be shy now. Or maybe we explained everything so well that everyone just... Right. Everyone is now an expert on classical music, on the there classical era. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone can, I mean, I have so much to learn still. I'm, I'm, I mean, you see a lot of books here and many of it is just with the classical period, deal with that. And there's always more to discover and more to learn. So uh, that's, that's been a real joy actually. And also in these past few weeks, reading, reading a lot, taking yeah. the time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, we've got- There is a question. Oh, excellent. From yeah, that's a good- um, Sheila. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of music has happened. Uh, it has been played in the class uh, in Italy during that time. Um, actually, especially Mozart uh, was touring throughout all of Europe and also in Italy and um, was very much, very much uh, inspired. The, Italy has a big, and uh, I mean, Taylor, obviously, he is a singer, the, a big opera um, tradition. And also, you know, having the first opera, um, I believe, was it 1600 or something? I mean, that's obviously earlier, but... but the turn, yeah. Yeah, of the, and, and then uh, opera was very, very big. And the, the lyrical style in Italy um, was front and foremost. Um, so the, I think the and the Baroque area, you would talk about um, French and and Italian and German. Um, is yeah, Baroque and style. And Bach um, wrote a lot of you know in the style of Italy. If you think about the Italian suites, and um, and also yeah, and Mozart uh, was inspired by Italy as well. And mm -hmm. um, now I'm I'm thinking. What I'm the, trying to think of the Italian composers that composers. we think of in the classical period. And it's kind of yeah, tough I, because I mean, at this point, uh, the Baroque era very much started in Italy. And so exactly all of the music that is being written in the classical period, especially as you say, opera is heavily influenced by Italian music. But this really yeah. is a period even if you think uh, historically, most of the most of the major historical events of this period are is a sort of shift to 
Germany, what is now Germany, Austria, um, of course, France yeah. and, and the United Kingdom and things like that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the, yeah, I would say that, yeah, I know I could agree. I mean, there, there, there are, I would say, Clementi, they, many of the, that's Clementi. the thing, Clementi, also, I mean, Opera Cimarosa, but also mm -hmm. um, there were many uh, Italian composers who also went to Vienna. And, you know, there was a, that was kind of the, the, yeah. Um, the sort of the center say... of gravity kind of moved uh, from from Italy being the most important sort of artistic exactly. in, capital of innovation to at this point Vienna really becomes that that sort yeah. of cultural capital. And then later again with opera, you know Rossini and and, and so forth and and um, and and Verdi of course, Bellini, Bellini Donizetti. Later on in the nineteenth century, then we we shift again the opera center or the Italian opera, the comic opera especially um, yeah. shifts back to Italy. Yeah, so that's that. It's a good question. Um, yeah. We focus in our classical era or period. Uh, talking about that, we really do focus a lot about on on Vienna on kind of the center of uh, European art at that, yeah. at that time. Yeah. And I love this next question from Karen Olson, which is, were the improvements made to the instruments such as the clarinet because the composer wrote music that the old instrument could not execute or is it independent? So later we think of, you know, Wagner as demanding that new instruments need to be created to fulfill his... Wagner-Tuven, yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 his, his wild artistic vision. Sorry for the eye roll. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it, it next is, week. Yeah, chicken and the egg here. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, um, I think both. Yeah. <laughs> both. Yeah. both um, you could answer it both ways because... Um, the, the clarinet, yes, it was kind of devised, or, or as we said, um, early 1700s. Um, but then, but then it developed. People did write up, write for the clarinet already. Also Vivaldi, even yes, but also clarinet in D and so forth. But, but um, it was really um, well, the clarinet. I, yeah, both. I think Mozart, for instance, heard clarinet first time. I think in London, actually, and then um, and yeah, and and then wrote something for the clarinet or the bassett horn, and then it got developed even more. I think both goes hand in hand. Really. Yeah, I would say that there's sort of an ecosystem of instrument makers, of instrumentalists, and of composers who are all sort of working together and informing each other in these developments. I'd say that that's, that's a pretty safe bet, right? Exactly. And, 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 and yeah, and many, and many composers were, I would, wouldn't say in directly involved with the development, but definitely um, were very interested and looked very closely to what the new, the new development, especially with the piano, Mm -hmm. definitely with the piano what the new developments were and how can you play and how can you you know write for this instrument what is new yeah. and and definitely uh, Beethoven always pushed that too yeah. yeah again let's go back to history and this is a huge period of economic development for the bourgeoisie so as we have this new rising middle class 
we also have a new market for instrument makers because these, the bourgeoisie wants to make music in their home. So these exactly. instrument makers, especially thinking of the piano, are trying to design the newest, latest thing with all of, with as many features as possible to attract those, those buyers who are not necessarily professional musicians, but who want to experience this sort of what used to be courtly entertainment in their homes. So yeah. that's also driving this development of instruments. Absolutely. And, and the way, you know, there's, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Um, if you, if you have, I was in Brussels a few months ago. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> a while ago now. Um, uh, but they, they have a brilliant um, music instrument uh, museum there, also in Vienna. But um, you can see, all these different harpsichords and pianos and and also the way um i mean an upright piano it was invented um so that people can with with not a lot of space can put it in the homes and play music because not everyone has the the capacity to have a big harpsichord or big grand piano later on uh in their homes mm -hmm. um the dukes and, and kings can do that but yeah but there was that's it, it and that's also that goes hand in hand then with as so the development of those instruments and the 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 home the, the use in their home then demanded from the composers also to write music that everyone can sing and play i mean yeah. so much of music especially piano or you know forehand piano pieces or chamber music uh, or songs were written because those composers also were music teachers and at a court and then wrote for their students so there was a lot of um, also amateur or semi-professional music being uh, or, or level being written and played. And, you know, that that was a big, big part of it. And that, yeah, goes hand in hand. The development of instruments, the, the writing of music, the ability and the opportunity and also the willingness of the, the middle class to play music and not just the, mm -hmm. the aristocracy yeah. and to have that hunger also that yeah. definitely inspired the composers to write more yeah. and differently. And we have time for just a couple of more questions. Dave Boren asks, how many different periods of music are recognized and where does the classical music, where does the classical period fit? Well, <laughs> the 20th century gets very complicated, but let's go from before. Um, there's, we call it the, what do you call it in English? The old, well, old music, ancient music. You, oh, uh, you. Do you mean uh, like not Renaissance? Medieval. Medi yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, medieval, medieval music. and you know, um, and and the medieval, then Renaissance, and also the. I mean, the, <laughs> well. We'll have to go many different ways, but uh, also writing secular music, writing um, and music for the for yeah, for the court, for the church. Um, both of this only separated um, later on, so in the Renaissance. But um, the the Gregorian chant is is well, I guess that's more of a that's not a era, but I would say we now what we hear music that we hear now. I would say goes back to the Renaissance. Not mm -hmm. really. You would have to find those ensembles that are really specialized. Already Renaissance music is specialized in some ways, but Baroque music you hear a lot. Um, and that, that is a big chunk of period. Then there is, there's a um, time between or 
overlapping the Baroque and the classical era, which are, you know, oh, and before that, an antique stilo antico also, and or, mm -hmm. and well, I already said ancient stuff, but between the Baroque and the, the classical period, it's the, the gallant style, the Sturm und Drang. All the, they're, they're very brief periods, I would say, but they're also recognized as some eras also. Um, but okay, I mean, if we want to just say the big ones, Renaissance, um, Baroque, uh, classical era, romantic, and then we go into the modern era and you have everything from um, Impressionism, um, from neo-Baroque, neo-classic classicism. Um, you go into the 12 tone techniques. So you get, go into lots of different streams. There's this, yeah. this um, and, and it, does, it does seem funny to me always when we say, um, oh yeah, so Schoenberg or, or some is modern music. Because that's a hundred years ago, over a hundred mm -hmm. years ago. So yeah. there, during the turn of the century, nineteen hundreds, there's a lot, um, a lot of different styles already, and and so forth. We can then talk in the romantic area about the uh, uh, absolute music and program music, but let's not do that now. Um, but then, uh, in the twentieth century, there are so many streams. So it's very hard to yeah. just say this is one era yeah. and this is one style. I think there's there's a generic sort of music history textbook response to that, uh, which is sort of what you what you uh, laid out. But there's also, of course, always it's it's never that simple. And yeah. since we're we're pressing against the deadline, oh, this is a I think a one that we will do real quick. Do you think there is or could ever be anything to come close to the classical period in music? For me, yes, they all come close, <laughs> and they, they agree. They all, they all do it in their own way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, of course, because of my specialty, have a special affection for the Baroque period. I also, I know we both love modern and postmodern and contemporary music, but I think yeah. the, the more I have grown as an artist, the more I have realized that. When I think that a composer or a genre or a period is not as good as another, it normally just means I haven't learned enough about it yet. I mean, yeah. I have, I personally have struggled with Beethoven my whole life uh, in terms, it's, it didn't really speak to me a lot of it in some of it mm. but then as i've as i've gotten older there have been those pieces and those performances and those moments that have been like oh wait no 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 now i do i do get this yes i think i i agree with you they're all every period has also its masterpieces and its studs <laughs> i mean there are there are pieces also by um I mean, I do love Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven very, very much. But uh, you know, there, there, these are great composers. There are other composers during that time that are maybe not as, or don't affect me or as much. But also, I think uh, in in our time, there are great composers, great music, and that I adore, and and that that shake me. And I think that's something also to consider that that these are not museum pieces. This is music that is is at least the performance is in real time, in real life, and it's now for us right now. And um, 
it's written a while ago, but also that the, the pieces written or the composers write for their time and they're inspired by their own time. And that, uh, that has a big, yeah, their time and their area has a lot to do with how they write. I mean, that, that uh, during the wars, uh, the, the first and two, second world war, people didn't think that, that they can write um, in a certain style and quote unquote, uh, you know, harmonic or lyrical music. I mean, but there's always harmony and lyricism to be found every, mostly everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. But there, there's, there's a style that, that, um, that, that is demanded sometimes from the time. And now it's, it, there are so many different styles. I mean, we are a globalized community and, and so the, the, that we don't have one area or one structure or one um, kind of, yeah, one, one period that we can talk about right now. There are all these different stream, streams yeah. and genres uh, coexisting and, and uh, also inspiring each other, which mm -hmm. is exciting. And this seems to be a recurring issue when we start talking. It, uh, we end up going long. So I'm glad that our Sorry. audience is sticking with us. No, no, no. But I, I love the questions that we are getting. Um, again, my sister in with a great one. Was Beethoven the first major composer to be independent, i.e. not reliant on a powerful patron such as the church or the aristocracy? The first part of the question, yes. Mm -hmm. um, he was, and it's a very good question, yes. He was the first one who never had a title. He was still dependent on patronage. He was still dependent on people paying him. And, 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 and not he couldn't just live by organizing concerts and, you know, that. Um, he also still taught, um, but, but he never had a position. He still had um, Gunnar um, patrons. Yeah, he still yeah. had patrons in the aristocracy who, who helped him and financed him as well. But yeah, no, he, didn't, he never had a position. So that's, yeah, yeah that's a good question uh, Karen Ford asks, were the composers inspired by artists or vice versa? Yes. The composers inspired, yes, vice versa, <laughs> yes. Um, yes, both, both. I mean, there's so many, sorry, Taylor. No, go ahead. No, no, there's so many instances where, where um, especially in opera, I would say, composers write for their voices, uh, write mm -hmm. for the voices that they hear and, and the people, the singers that they know. And so m most, most operas have specific people in mind. And yeah. so their voices are inspiring the composer to write. Um, mm -hmm. Still the case. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, and that's sort of true throughout music history. If we talk earlier and we're talking about court music, that's a very intense version of that where all of the court musicians and court composers are living and working and performing together every day. So of course, that's a very intense collaborative oh, yeah. spirit. And all the way through today, I mean, I know you have, you have relationships with composers that you love to work with, as well as performers yeah. that love to work with yep. those composers. And yep. yeah, it's, it's funny how even, you know, three or 400 years later, we, the music community still is this sort of, at its best, it is an ecosystem of composers, conductors, uh, instrumentalists, vocalists who 
are all writing for and inspired by each other. That's sort exactly. of one of the great joys of this trade, yeah? Yeah. I mean, also, and, and just a practical thing, if you are a court composer, or a composer or Kapellmeister at court, you have a certain ensemble and you have to write for them. Mm -hmm. that, um, that might be that you don't have, I mean, especially depending on the court and the money, you might not have a full orchestra. You might have a certain ensemble and maybe some instruments missing there and maybe you have uh, four celli, but only, you know, one viola, whatever. You know, things like mm -hmm. that, you need to write for this ensemble. And so that uh, out of necessity, composers are inspired so to speak to write for certain uh, performers or just the, the kind of opportunity that is uh, given um circumstances um but yeah. the, the the craft of certain composers uh, certain artists definitely has inspired also mozart clarinet anton anton stadler is his name i believe that was the clarinetist he played for uh, he wrote for and 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 obviously composers and their work inspire artists to play it and to find the voice and also to commission i mean there's so many instances where com um, performers go up to the composer and say hey can you please write to strauss an oboe concerto for me mm -hmm. please at the end of your life i'm, yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan please write it so things like that of course. Yeah, and that, that speaks to Karen Olson's question about uh, do we think that Mozart wrote his clarinet concerto because he had a friend who played the clarinet? Um, and you were saying, what um, was the name of the clarinetist again? I believe it's Anton Stadler. Okay. But yes, we Stadler, will, we will go back Stadler, Stadler mm -hmm. definitely, but Anton Stadler, I believe. Um, yes, and, and also, I mean, the, the Mannheim, uh, Mannheim Orchestra that was at the mm -hmm. court of Mannheim at the yeah. time was the best orchestra in Europe, in the world, I would say, but in Europe at least uh, there um, and people, so Mozart was absolutely inspired by that. Um, or or then, then Mannheim at some point became, the, that ensemble went to Munich and so he wrote the Idiomaneo also, but others for this orchestra because he knew, okay, or he then changed uh, um, certain operas when they were performed in Vienna or versus in Munich, because he knew, okay, there were some clarinet players, really good ones in Munich. Let's write that for them and so forth. So yes, um, many, many people wrote for their friends um, yeah. over the, over the history. I mean, if you think of the, the, the very, very fruitful relationships, also Brahms and Josef Joachim, Mm -hmm. the, the violinist who he wrote the violin concerto for and also others and Josef Joachim anyway was an um, a inspiration for so many composers yeah. writing violin concertos. He had lots of friends. <laughs> he has lots of friends. He was a star. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love this question from Scott Likens. How did aspects of the classical era composition return in the interwar period? Is neoclassical music still 20th century in style? Yeah, oh, that's a very good question. Um, so one of the one of the composers that is most known for neoclassicism or writing works in neoclassic neoclassical style is Stravinsky. If you look at um, Pulcinella, which is basically a, a, a suite in the style of, um, well, let me say, it is a twentieth century work because of its language, because of its colors and instrumentation, mm -hmm. the way he uses instrumentation um, and also the, the motifs and the, the way he develops them. But the certain structure and aestheticism 
is the one from from baroque classical baroque, era yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so it's neo-baroque but um but also neoclassical um the, the just the structure the structure of it um many many pieces like that were they were i guess if they're they're written in the language with the the colors and the dialect of the 20th century mm-hmm. um but the the one of the goals I would say is probably also kind of getting rid of all the weaves and all the, all the, the emotional, I wouldn't say baggage, but the emotion of the the romantic era right. and then kind of, kind of stripping that away. And yeah. that's kind of the neoclassical neo-baroque uh, style. And just just to piggyback on that, I think that, that that is how I think of 20th century neoclassicism. I think of it as a reaction against the extreme subjectivity and emotionality of of romantic, of high romantic music. Uh, That's put much better get, than I did just now. Well, yes, <laughs> exactly. And we and we think of. And it's funny, we think of things like Schoenberg and 12-tone music and atonal music as something very different. But if we, and now I'm getting in the weeds, but if we look at the way they were thinking of it, they were thinking of it many times as a sort of heightened romanticism, as liberating (laughs) themselves even from the scale because they wanted to convey pure emotion. It's it's expressionism, right? It's heightened mm-hmm. expressionism. Yeah. So then this neoclassicism is a reaction against that sort of extreme emotionality and, and subjectivity. Yeah, exactly. That's and cool. finally, we have a great question from Jacob Sirik. Hi, Jake. Uh, he says, maybe this was covered prior to me joining. It was not. But what are the essential classical periods? Uh, or no, what are the essential classical pieces? Could we come up with a list off the top of our head and could we put together a Spotify playlist? I think that that would be fun to do. I mean, it's, it's again, maybe an impossible task, but- It's I hard think, to, yes, it's hard yeah, to it's, exclude. It's very, very yeah. easy to include, but mm-hmm. yes. I think when we get done here over the next few days, uh, we should be able to come up with some sort of limited listening examples that go through some of these different genres of- I mean, just briefly, if you want me to say a few of them, yeah, just so that people can already go on Spotify and listen. I mean, obviously, I mean, this is is a very, what? Beethoven Five, Beethoven Fifth Symphony, Ninth Symphony, any any Beethoven Symphony really, but um, if you've never heard a Beethoven Symphony, start with those. Um, I mean, Ninth is still to this day my favorite symphony, and this might be a kind of an obvious choice. I don't know, but it's just the, the, so much of. Um, oh, that brings me to this. One of the most. This is a very nerdy thing again, but the, one of the brilliant and wonderful things that has nothing to do with music about the Ninth Symphony is that he Beethoven took the three um, main uh, languages of the time into in the score. He wrote it in the score. So, for instance. Um, Italian um, tempo indications, as is usual. Uh, German text, obviously, Freude, Schöner Götterfunken. Uh, and he writes, he writes an asterisk um, at the beginning of the fourth movement for the basses and the celli, and writes in French 
He could have done that in German. He could have done that mm. in Italian. He writes in French that this uh, part needs to be played as a recitative. Anyway, huh. anyway, but but that, that's just to to combine the, the sense of brotherhood, the sense of unity, and the sense of love and respect of all people um, in this one symphony. Anyway, that's that's mm -hmm. something we can talk about in many many different podcasts. Five and nine, we can if you say Haydn. Um, any you can start with any of the symphonies that have a name. If you want to start, I mean, one of my absolute favorites is the last symphony, 104, the London symphony, so-called London. Why it is called London, no one really knows. I mean, all last 12 were, were composed for the London audience. Um, anyway, we can talk about this in a different podcast too. But um, yeah, there, there's so many. 95 uh, symphony of Haydn, that was the first one that I conducted. So it mm -hmm. definitely has a... Uh, dear place in my heart Mozart so much I mean also so much to choose from I am uh, going also, to request the clarinet quintet absolutely as a representative. clarinet quintet also the concerto we talked about the requiem uh, the symphonies oh, yeah. 39 40 41 the last three but also there's so many others mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's better not to start at the very beginning don't start with the first symphony or the first Haydn symphony. They're still figuring it out, probably. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but I would say, yeah, th these are already a lot of symphonies, um, but there's so much, so much to choose from. I mean, the, the, the Beethoven um, piano sonatas, 32. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 32 piano sonatas, great. Really, really good. Yes. There's so much well, to choose from, and we'll, we'll, we'll give a few options, maybe. <laughs> we will, yeah, we will think of this and come up with something to hopefully distribute to you this week. And Operas, we didn't that, even talk about oh, operas. Opera. Oh my gosh, you know, I like opera. Um, do you? I do, I do. Um, well, as always, Christian, it is such a pleasure to chat with you and to it's, share it's this time. all my pleasure. We could talk for hours, which is wonderful. And someday we will in <laughs> Munich, in a beer garden somewhere. Or um, in Brainerd next year. Yes, or Brainerd next year, even better. Um, at this point in the lecture, um, as we close up, I would like to remind you that one of the ways that we can keep our performances as well as things like this free is by asking you to place a value on our programs and getting you to hopefully donate. So I'm going to ask Sam to put a link into the chat uh, where you can donate online or feel free to be in touch with us at any time about anything, but I really do encourage you to donate. I would also encourage you to sign up for our next edition of LampCast, which will be this coming Tuesday. That's going to be another one of those discussions in depth with Alison Chu, where she's going to be discussing the history of female composers. There is a very exciting interview portion of that with one of the most important artistic voices of today, Caroline Shaw, the Pulitzer Prize winning composer, singer, violinist. Uh, yeah. So don't miss that lecture on Tuesday. And then next Saturday, Christian and I will be back to talk about Wagner. Oh, very important, very big. Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a joy to share this time with all of you, with you, Christian, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Have a great day.
Thank you for tuning in to LAMFCAST. For more information about the Lakes Area Music Festival, please visit lakesareamusic.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram to get more information about our upcoming digital season. Thank you and see you next time.